You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with self-made millionaire and real estate investor Willie Mandrell to talk about how his background in financial services helped his experiences in real estate investing. He runs his own real estate investment firm based in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Willie is also the author of Cashflow Secrets, a book on real estate investing and finance tips. I think it's very enlightening to learn more about how Willie scaled his portfolio to over $200 million. In addition, he focuses primarily in Boston, which is an expensive market, instead of expanding to other affordable markets like I've done with my portfolio and like a lot of other syndicators do with their portfolios. So without further delay, let's dive right into today's conversation with Willie Mandrell. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Willie Mandrell. Welcome to the show, Willie. Thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate you having me on. For those listening to the show today who may not be familiar with you, tell us a bit about your background and your story. Sure. I got started investing in real estate in uh, 2006. So about 13 years ago, right before the last market crash. 2007, stock market started to tumble. 2008, real estate market not too far along. So things that we're going through today have kind of been through before. It's really helped my career. But you know, I'm a big follower of Warren Buffett and he's a big believer when people are running scared that you do the opposite. And I'm glad I listened to him, picked up some properties in 2010, 2012, and just kind of grew my portfolio from there and been buying ever since. And now we're in 2020. We're looking at something very similar to 2007, 2008. Stock market starting to take a tumble and just kind of trying to continue to build from here. And just for some context for everyone listening, we talk about how we're in some turbulent times right now. And we're recording this the beginning of April 2020. So of course, we're dealing with coronavirus, COVID-19, depending on where the markets and everything are at when this comes out. That's where we're at currently. So with your background in financial services and having gotten the industry licenses, why'd you decide to get into real estate? I mean, there's a lot of different things you can invest in. And having experience in the financial services industry, you of course knew about a lot of those different ways. So why specific in real estate? So financial services, why real estate? Yeah. I mean, financial services, I had my, my Series 7, my 66 options trading license. I really liked the business, but at the end of the day, I 2007 kind of woke me up. I didn't really believe in the business. If you can have a million dollars in your portfolio or $100,000 or whatever the number is and wake up you know, a week later and have that be slashed by 30%, it's just a real killer. I saw in 2008 and 2009, people who thought they were going to retire in those years go back to work. They started working at you know elderly people, greeting people at Walmart again when they were on the verge of their retirements because they had too much stake in the stock market. So I personally am not a huge believer despite having all those industry licenses and despite knowing a lot of financial advisors. I like real estate. Real estate's a more tangible investment. I can control it. I can manage it. The performance has a lot to do with how I react to certain situations, right? The tenants that I select and put into those units the way I manage the property, the way I upkeep the CapEx expenses, you know, the things that I do to improve the property. I fell in love with real estate. It's a lot more, I guess I'm a little bit of a control freak. I like the idea of having more control over my financial future, which real estate allows me to do. I'm both a stock and a real estate guy. So I like both assets. And I think I personally think there's room in everybody's portfolio for both. But like you said, if you're 
more hands-on and you want to be able to control the asset, real estate might be a little better for you. Allocate more of your portfolio that way, put a little less in stocks, and you can allocate according to how you like to plan things. Because like you said, when you invest in the markets, you have no control of it, really. I mean, you can pick the companies or ETFs that you're investing in, but once you've invested that money, it's in the management company's hands. Whereas with real estate, you're the one managing it, so you are in control of that asset. So I think that is really important. That's one of the pieces I like about real estate as well. Absolutely. It's the ability to, like I said, dictate my own future. I felt even when you're going into mutual funds, I mean, somebody else is picking those stocks and those bonds and those certain selection and their holding period and everything else for you. And your financial future is based on the performance of that fund or somebody else is kind of dictating that. So with real estate, and I I 100% agree with you, I think there's uh, room for, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm completely out of stocks and I don't have any, there's no mutual funds or any other type of uh, you know market and based investments in my portfolio because there absolutely is. I just tend to be a little bit more heavy on the real estate side than the market. And the reason I wanted to bring that up, I talk about this a couple times on the podcast. I talk about it a lot in our Facebook group and on some of my social media platforms. But a lot of times, real estate podcasts or just real estate platforms talk about how real estate's the only asset class that you should invest in. Stocks are horrible, and I just I like to bring it up how I think they're both good, and you can invest in both and be successful in both. Maybe. Like you said, you like real estate more. So maybe you're even 75 in real estate, 25% in stocks. That's fine. I mean, you still have both, right? I'm not saying that is your percentage, but you have a split, right? And I just like to bring that up because here on the show, we like to realize that there is more outside of just real estate, although real estate is a great asset class. They have a good mix. Right now, I'm looking at, uh, to be honest with you, travel industry stocks. They're taking a huge hit and I try to buy the dips. So you know, I had some cash liquid. In just Southwest Airlines, JetBlue, Marriott, the cruise lines, I'm looking at those industries that I know have been beaten up right now because of this coronavirus, but that are going to come back and they're going to come back very strong. I'm a, I'm a believer that once the economy gets rolling again, people are going to want it, especially with the fact that we've been locked up in the house for so long. People are going to want to get out and fly somewhere, anywhere. They're going to want to take a cruise and those stocks, those industries are going to come back very strong. So those are the things that I'm looking at right now, the ones that have been taking a hit and that will make a major comeback. You talked about how you're feeling like now is similar to what you experienced back in 07, 08, 09. Talk to us a bit about how things are similar, how they're different, and how you're preparing for this current economic event that we're handling because you went through those times. Again, going back to Warren Buffett, he's like, when people are being greedy, be cautious. And I don't know if those are exact words, but when people are being cautious, be greedy. And that's what people, that's where we were in 2006. It was just like you couldn't lose in real estate. You would buy anything and it'd be worth 10 to 15% the next year, especially in areas like here in Boston. And I was young. I was 23 at the time, didn't really fully understand market cycles and everything. So I bought in and I took a hit, took a big hit, but I learned a lot from that. And I learned that markets do recover. Conversely, in 2009, 2010, People were still fresh off of their unemployment or you know, uh, the market taking a dip or their retirement taking a dip or hit, taking a hit. So they're running scared. And I realized that some of the real estate that was selling for, let's call it 700000 or 600000 was now priced at four fifty. I knew that those assets were going to come back and the rental values were outrageous compared to the sales price, right? I mean, we talk about the 1% rule, you know, buying assets where the rent is 1% of the sales price. So we were looking at things here in Boston where the rents were $4,500, but the, the asset was selling for you know, uh, $400. So you're exceeding the 1% rule. And when you look at that, you had to jump in. So today is very similar to that. People are going to run scared. 
And when people are running scared, you don't follow the crowd. You look for opportunities. If you're running the same way as everyone else. It's going to be hard to find opportunities. I refer back to my daughter's movie, the movie, The Incredibles all the time. There's a line in it that says, if everyone was incredible, no one would be. And it's the same thing with a lot of things in life. If everyone was successful, no one would be, right? If everyone was a good investor, then no one would be. It would just be the boy of life. So if you're following the crowd, how do you ever beat the crowd, right? You have to do things differently. And when everyone else is running in one direction, I think you need to turn around and look for opportunities in the opposite direction. For those who are relatively new to real estate, explain to us a little bit more about what the 1% rule is and why is that important and how can an investor use that to quickly determine if a property might be worth exploring? The 1% rule is just basically, it's, I wouldn't say it's a rule, it's more of a rule of thumb. It's a way to look at properties and quickly and determine whether they will perform financially, right? And that's, it's just a quick look and say, if we're collecting here in Boston, let's say three family, right? And it'll collect $1,500 a unit, you're collecting $4,500 total. If that asset or that piece of property is priced somewhere around 450, the rents are 1% of the total purchase price. And that'll give you a good indication or tells me that I should probably look into this a little further. It might be a good investment. If you start to see rents at, let's call it 3000 and your asset is priced around 450, you're well below the 1% rule. If you have room to improve those rents, great. If not, then I can tell you that that asset is probably not going to meet the test of going through the due diligence and everything else that you need to put that through to um, purchase that asset. Like you said, if you can raise the rents, you want to do that quick calculation using what the stabilized rents or the increased rents are going to be. So if you're going to buy it at 3000 but you know that they're under market because it's a mom and pop's landlord and they just haven't raised rents in 20 years and they need to, then in your calculation, raise that to 4500 and then you can determine if that property meets the 1% rule or not. Like you said, it's not a hard and fast. If it meets the 1% rule, go and buy that property. But it's something that allows you to quickly filter out properties because you're going to find hundreds of properties that you're going to want to analyze. And you could quickly filter out the ones that don't even meet the 1% rule because there's a very slim chance that those are going to meet them. And then you can at least analyze the ones with the 1% rule much further and then find good deals from there. How did you not get discouraged during the last crash? Because you started buying in 2006 and into 2007. So you probably made a lot of money. You started out doing really well. And then everything crashed as a new investor. How did you not get discouraged? How did you know? And how were you just willing to continue on in real estate? It just made financial sense. I tell people all the time, I tell clients and I tell mentors and students that if you want to follow and listen to people that are doing what you've already done, that have been where you want to go, no disrespect to anybody's family or my aunt or my uncle, but if your aunt is giving you financial advice, but she's not financially where you want to be, then why are you listening to your aunt, I guess is the question, right? Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has something that they want to add to the discussion, which is human nature. That's great. But what you want to do is look at what the people that you aspire to be like are doing, right? And those people were buying during the crash, right? They weren't running and hiding like most people were. You look at the Donald Trumps or the Warren Buffetts or the Mark Cubans or whoever you look to to say, this is the person that I aspire to be like, what are they doing? And typically successful people are doing the opposite of what the crowd is doing. And I wanted to talk about that because there's a lot of people that are going to get into a real estate now or they have over the last six months, maybe even a year. They did well for a little bit and now they're dealing with this situation and they're like, oh my God, what do I do? Is real estate right for me? Is this even as good as people thought? I'm not getting any rent from my tenants because they were told they don't have to pay rent. So now what do I do? So I think to hear your perspective on how you were able to deal with that back in 07, 08, 09, 
is very helpful for the audience. And also, like you said, you want to listen to people who have been through it. I believe in that 110% as well. So to be able to hear from you, someone who's been through it, I think that's very important for the audience to hear. Absolutely. I've continued to buy over the last few years. Very hesitant, knew that, like I said, we might be at the end of a market cycle. But now I would say in the next couple of years, I'm probably going to be aggressive in my in terms of going after deals, trying to pull new leads in, trying to talk to everyone I know, looking for, trying to talk to every single real estate agent that's out there, every wholesaler, other investors as well. So looking for leads, but very picky about these deals I select, right? Now I really want the slam dunk. What you have is lending. You have two components, right? It's finding good deals and then there's finding lenders. Right now, lending is going to tighten up just a little bit. And I know that's what a lot of investors are fearing is, well, I might have a deal, but are banks still lending? Right now is going to be a little bit more difficult to find lending, but let's call it a year ago, it was more difficult to find deals. So there's always going to be a, a seesaw, right? And again, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would suspect in the next year or a couple of years, deals are going to be plentiful and lending is going to tighten up. So now you're going to have to really tighten up your marketing or your presentation to lenders now, going out there and making sure that you're showing strong cash flow, making sure that you're showing good reserves, making sure that you're showing a track record. And if you don't have a track record personally, partnering up with another investor or somebody else that's in your industry that can show that track record. So it's always going to be kind of a seesaw in the industry between lending and deal flow. But as a new investor or somebody kind of in the business, you just have to manage that. So let's talk about all the different things you're working on. How did that all come together? Because you're not only an investor, but you're also a broker, have your own brokerage, and you also have Boston's number one networking group for investors. Most people focus on one of those things because they're all such big projects. Why'd you decide to do them all? They all just came together. They're all just pieces of a bigger puzzle at the end of the day. And I'm a big believer. I'm you know Gary Keller, the one thing, great book. And I believe that you should focus on your one thing. But the one thing concludes by saying, you know, once you kind of master that one thing, it is okay to move on to something else. And For me, it started off as I really wanted to invest in real estate. It really was a huge believer. Another Gary Keller book that's great is The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. Read that and kind of just fell in love and was like, this is the business for me. So I wanted to be immersed into the business. I'm in corporate. I'm doing the nine to five thing. And I just didn't feel like I was going to be able to grow a portfolio from that corporate desk. So I said to myself, how do I get into into real estate and just kind of be immersed into it all day, every day? I know I'm going to find better deals. I'm going to be able to network and find better lenders if I'm in this every day. So I got my real estate license. Not necessary to be an investor, but I did get my real estate license, worked for a couple of different brokerages. And as I had a little bit of success within the industry, other agents started coming to me and saying, hey, we'd love to be on your team. We'd love to kind of figure out how you're doing certain things. And from there, it kind of grew into a brokerage. And then Boston Wealth Builders started it because, quite frankly, I was lonely. I think it's 2012, 2013. Part of being on this journey, this wealth building journey, this investor journey, is kind of being a trailblazer, being a leader. And sometimes when you're leading and you're going off in another direction, like we talked about, everyone's running right and you're running left, it gets kind of lonely. And Boston Wealth Builders started because I wanted to find other people who thought like me. I wanted to find other people who had that like mind who wanted to do more than just have a nine to five, do more than just kind of survive until the weekend, wanted to actually go out there and build something. So I stumbled across meetup.com, put the group together, and it just grew like wildfire. We had 100 members by the end of the year, and I think we're close to 2,500 today. So it's a great group of people, great connections. I've met a, a ton of partners and wholesalers and agents and lenders and just everything through the group. So it's been interesting. It's been tough to manage. 
manage kind of the brokerage and the Boston Wealth Builders and the investment portfolio. But they kind of all work together in, in a sense, right? Boston Wealth Builders feeds some business to our brokerage. It also provides leads for our portfolio. And then Boston Wealth Builders allows me to kind of continue to educate the public about opportunities within the real estate business as well. Though they seem like they're separate entities, they all kind of work. If someone listening to the show today doesn't have access to a group like yours in their local city, or just the ones they do have access to just aren't high quality, do you recommend they start their own themselves? Even if they're a new investor, could it help their real estate investing business? Absolutely. If you don't, and this is the situation, you know, that was uh, 2012 and, and here in Boston, we, there were, we had RIAs or real estate investment associations, but I wasn't a fan of them. What most RIAs do, and this is not to knock anybody who's running one right now, is they find a hotel room or they find a restaurant and they say, let's do this the second Tuesday of every month. And they'll go to that same restaurant on the second Tuesday of every month. What happens is you end up getting the same crowd. You end up getting, if I have my daughter home with me on Tuesday nights, this is a good chance next month, my daughter is also going to be home with me on Tuesday night. And if I wasn't able to make it prior, I'm probably not going to be able to make it again. So you basically exclude a lot of people from that very rigid schedule. So what we did with Boston Wealth Builders is a little harder to manage, but we created a platform where we do rehab tours on Saturdays or Sundays. We'll do networking events on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night. We'll do webinars on a random Wednesday or Thursday. We just do a nice mix of different platforms, different evenings, different days, locations, towns. We go to familiar with Boston. We go to Cambridge. We go to Somerville. We go to South Shore, North Shore, and just kind of get a nice mix of people. So wanted to provide something that was a little bit different than your typical RIA, where you have the same group of people meeting there and talking about the same things. This group has allowed a lot of people to kind of get a different mix of information and exposure to different people. How has the brokerage that you created and being a broker helped your real estate investing personally? It's helped a lot. I mean, a lot of the brokers that end up coming to the Mandrell company are investors themselves. I mean, that's, that's our focus. We're not your typical brokerage where we go out and we kind of market ourselves as your everyday agents. We don't really do a lot of condos or single families. Our focus is the investment property multifamily space. That's how we put ourselves out there. It's how we market ourselves. So as we're looking, assisting clients and buying their first multifamily, a lot of our agents are also investors themselves. It provides them the ability to go out and say, look, I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm crunching the numbers. I'm familiar with this. This is the neighborhood I live in. This is the neighborhood I've invested in. This pro forma looks good and you should probably hop on this investment. The second piece is there's a lot of opportunities that come to our agents through the office. And I get phone calls that saying, hey, Will, um, I have a deal that's on the table. Would you like to hop in this deal with me? And instead of us taking a commission, let's just buy it directly from the seller, negotiate something. And we put this into our portfolio. So I would say four or five we sold a couple of properties just recently, but I've invested with upwards of 10 agents within the office as partners on deals as well. I know you mentioned it briefly a few minutes ago, but a lot of people ask if they need a real estate license to invest in real estate. So let's dive into that a little bit deeper. What do you think? Do people need a real estate license to be a successful investor? There's two sides of that. One is if you have your real estate license, there is a lot of liability to you or on you, should I say. You must disclose that you're a real estate agent. You're a person of knowledge or a person of privilege in that particular situation. So you talk to a seller and the seller you know, asking for something where you're like, hey, this might be a good deal or good to fit in my portfolio. You now need to disclose that you're a real estate agent. You're on kind of the seller is now on alert versus if you're 
not a licensed professional, you sit down, you have a one-on-one conversation, it's a little bit easier. The upside to having your real estate license though is access to information quickly, right? Here in Boston, you have the Suffolk County Registry of Deeds. Anybody can go out and look at property deeds and see who owns a piece of property. But having my real estate license and having access to MLS allows me to do it with a couple clicks of a button. I punch in an address right from my home computer and it spits out various information to me. So I would say that it's a give and take. You don't need to have your real estate license to be a successful investor. I know plenty of investors that don't have their real estate license, but it can be a, you know, it can be an added benefit. The other trouble that you'll have is if you get your real estate license and your real intention is to just be an investor, it may be or it can be difficult to find a brokerage to hang your license with if you're basically telling that broker, I have no intention of selling real estate. I just want to buy my own stuff, but I want to take my liability and put it off onto you as a brokerage without earning you any commission. That's a tough sell. So it takes some digging to find a brokerage that's willing to take you on if you're just trying to be an investor. Yeah, that last piece is really important. And it's actually one that I don't think we've heard here yet on the show because I asked quite a few different people about this. I've heard varying opinions. I like getting different opinions for everyone in the audience to hear, weigh those different opinions and make a decision themselves. But that last point you made about being able to give your license, because when you're an agent, you have to go through a brokerage and their license is with a broker, for those who don't know. And a lot of your liability actually goes through the broker. And when you're selling a property, it's actually the broker selling the property and you get a commission for bringing them the deal. You're not actually the one like really procuring that deal. You're not the one with the liability. It's the broker. So there's a lot of liability for them to hold. And especially if you're just not really practicing, you don't know all the ins and outs, and you're trying to do your own deals, that can be a lot of liability for the broker to take on, especially when they're not really making any money on you. So I think that was a really good point that you brought up that not a lot of people have so far on the show. Now, I want to dive into your personal investing journey a bit more. Tell us a bit about how you actually got started. What was your first property that you bought? The first property was a two-family, two-family right outside of Boston, just south of Boston. That was the 2006. It was my personal residence as well. Got into it with an FHA loan. Great program for those of you kind of just starting out. If I can take a quick side note, if you are someone who is looking to get into real estate, but you don't own rental property yet, or you don't own a home yet, though you may not want to live with your tenants or live in a multifamily lifestyle, because that was my, the situation with my wife. She, right? she said, hey, look, I don't really want to live with other people. We make a decent income. Let's just go buy a single family home. I would encourage you to make that first purchase a multifamily. Live there temporarily or go get something else later. FHA allows you to go in and buy a multifamily home, a two or three family, four family home with minimal down, three and a half percent. You can now take that and once you're ready to move out, if it's a year down the road, take your unit, your personally occupied unit, rent that out, and now go buy another single family with minimal down, maybe 5% if you're still holding the FHA loan. So that's exactly what we did. But we actually took it a step further. So the first one was a two-family. And then my wife and I both got out of college and you know she's moving around, I'm moving around. And I told her, I was like, look, let's, I know you don't really want the multifamily lifestyle, but this is a really cool way for us to kind of accumulate a few properties here. So we weren't married at the time. She went and bought her second home, not too far from here or in the next town over, a three family with 5% down. I did the exact same thing. Another three family with 5% down. Now we own eight units, right? Now we're married. Now we're looking. It's a few years later. Jobs are settling. Jobs are settling in. And now we go buy the single family 
with 5% down as well. So now we own eight rental units and a single family, all with very little out of pocket. So I would encourage most people in there, especially when they're beginning, ask as many questions of your mortgage broker as possible, really understand the lending side of things. And Rob, one more thing in here, HGTV and a lot of the TV shows give out, this is me as a real estate investor talking as well, this image of a couple sitting down at a table and they're shaking the keys and they just say, hey, we just bought our first single family together or bought our first home together. What they won't tell you and what the mortgage broker doesn't tell you is that if from a debt to income ratio standpoint or from a liability standpoint, that mortgage now is both tied to that husband and wife or those two individuals, that young couple that's bought that home together. If you can buy a home on your own as the wife or as the husband or as a young couple, you should certainly do that. If you need both incomes, do that. But if you can buy a home on your own, you should certainly do that, freeing up the other person to go buy an additional asset later on. Yeah, I really like that strategy as well. I think it's a great way for new investors to get started, especially if they don't have enough for a 20% down payment, if they live in an expensive market, or even if they don't, just if 20% can be a lot of money for a property. So if you want to get started investing in real estate, that's a great way to go about it. So how did you get from there to scaling to where you are now to having over $10 million in your portfolio? Once we had the two threes, the two family, the single family, things get a little bit more tricky, right? You go back to a conventional lender and they say, no, 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 you're a real estate investor at this point, right? We're not going to give you any more conventional financing. So at that point, I start reading about a little bit more creative tactics, commercial lending. I understand that I don't have 20 to 25% down. So you start getting a little bit more creative and that's when I stumbled across bigger pockets and the BRR strategy or BRRR strategy, which is the buy, rehab, rent and refinance. Great, great strategy. And I've been using that ever since. So what that is, is we no longer go out and buy what we would describe as rent ready properties or market ready properties. We go out and we buy things that need an extensive amount of work. Not everything is this clean, but just to give you kind of an idea of what we're doing here in Boston today in 2020. We're buying properties. We try to buy them somewhere around 55 to 60 cents on the dollar. So we're going out and we're looking for stuff. And I know when I say that, a lot of people are thinking, how are you possibly buying 50 properties that cheap? We're going out and looking for waters coming into the windows are bad. There are heating systems are fried. It's not livable, right? We're going in there and we're probably going to put $200,000 into the property. And at that point, the after repair value, we're into it for roughly 800000 So 600 purchase price, 200 in, and I'm making numbers really, really clean because obviously there's financing costs and holding costs and everything else. Property is now worth a million. We can go back to the bank and refinance the whole loan. We'll probably do that with a hard money lender. We'll go back and get traditional commercial financing for an 80-20 split. And now we can go back and pay off our hard money lender. We have an asset that's worth a million dollars with the ARV and we owe 800,000 on it. So if I can clarify that, if I can look at it from another angle, most people look at a million dollar property and they say, I have to put 20% down or $200,000 down. We reverse engineer it and create our equity, right? We're buying it super cheap, putting money into it and knowing that it's going to be worth more money than what we put into it at the end of the day. So that's the Burr strategy. And that's what we've been using ever since. So what do you say to someone who's listening to that and hears those numbers, 600,000, 200,000, 800,000, a million, and they're just like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. I don't have that kind of money. How can I do these types of deals? How are you able to fund these types of deals? 
So I would say don't get intimidated by the numbers. My strategy and my formula is no different than another market, right? I mean, those numbers are the same thing as 60,000, 20,000, and 100,000 in another market, right? It's, it's just a formula. You could be in a completely different market. It could be 6 million, 8 million, and 10 million, right? Don't be intimidated by the zeros. At the end of the day, everyone is going to have their own particular market. You just have to know your numbers. So how do we fund that? We absolutely don't have a ton of cash to play with. My wife and I, we have two kids. We have our own mortgage. We have some other obligations. I would encourage new investors. This is kind of further down the road, right? Don't worry so much about this right now until you have exhausted your conventional financing options first. But now we're using private lenders. So your private lender initially would start off being your uncle or your aunt or your cousin or someone who has give an example. Private lender typically is, I'm a doctor or a lawyer or a business owner, and I work 90 hours a week. I work something crazy. And right now, I really, I understand that the stock market is taking a little bit of a dip and I want to get my money somewhere else. I want to get my money invested somewhere else. I don't want to just leave it in cash. I know I need to invest, but I don't have the time to go out and look for real estate investments. So I know my cousin or nephew or Willie or you know whoever Willie is, has the ability to go out, knows the market's been a broker, knows the investment side really well. So the conversation starts in me presenting to them or them presenting it to me, but we go out and we will borrow, let's call it $100,000 from uncle. And you're going to pay uncle 12% on that cash or whatever you agree to. The beauty of private money is really comes down to your uncle is acting as a bank, but you and your uncle term the terms. It could be 4%, it could be 12%. The loan could be for one year, it could be for two years. We take that private capital and we use that capital as a down payment for a hard money loan or a commercial loan or whatever it may be. Once we've rehabbed the property, we've done our renovations, we've rented it, it's fully leased up. The property is worth significantly more than what it was when we bought it. We're now able to refinance, pull cash out, pay off the hard money lender and pay off my uncle. So do I get any money out of this? No. Cash wise, no, but I'm left with an asset now and to go back to my numbers, that's worth $1 million. I only have a commercial loan on it for 800000 So again, you can do the same thing. This Burr strategy works in a neighborhood where the purchase price is 60000 and the rehabs are 20000 and the after repair value is 100000 Works the same exact way. Now you're just borrowing instead of 100000 maybe it's 10000 or 20000 from your uncle. And then from there, it kind of expands. And uncle tells auntie and uncle tells his, his coworker. And then you have a network of private lenders that you can tap into and continue to do deals with. And I'm sure your networking group and being a broker and having your own brokerage, all of that, I'm sure leads into having private lenders, private investors invest with you. So it's really just immersing yourself in the real estate world, doing these types of things, going to networking events, starting your own networking group that'll lead to these connections that can give you private lenders. So why have you decided to stay in the Boston market rather than going to other markets across the US where you could probably find more affordable deals? That's a two-part answer. One, I stay in the Boston market because I know inside out the value of properties. When you know it's when it's your backyard, I can do a lot less due diligence because the formula is already there. I know that your average three family within. And again, I actually have a super narrow focus. And this is not for everyone. Some people like to invest out of state and teach his own. I just encourage you to have your niche. But I actually only invest within three neighborhoods within Boston. So super focused. And that allows me basically to say, you know, when a property hits the market 
and you give me a few statistics, right? You tell me what the rent numbers are. You tell me the bedroom count. You tell me the square footage. You tell me the particular neighborhood. I can put a value on that with very little due diligence. What that allows me to do is it allows me to move a lot quicker than most investors, right? You tell me, you present me with a deal. It's not going to take me two or three days to submit an offer to you. It's going to take me maybe a couple hours to Google Earth it, look at the, the exterior. Conservatively, I can give you an offer without walking through it in many cases. If the numbers are a little bit tighter, then maybe I need to get in. But I can move a lot faster than most investors because I know my market so well. The second side of that is Boston specifically, and this is not to knock anyone else or anyone else's investment strategy, but it's a really strong market, right? So right now, we're, we mentioned we're in April 2020. Coronavirus is among us. The stock market is taking a little bit of a hit. We imagine that because of that, the real estate market is going to take a little bit of a hit as well. And I feel like Boston is a very strong market in terms of the economics, right? When the rest of the country is saying we're down on real estate values 15, 20%, that's not necessarily the case in every single market. Boston doesn't experience what the rest of the country does. We have some of the best institutions, some of the best hospitals. Harvard, MIT, you know, Northeast and some of the biggest schools here, some of the best schools here as well. We have students coming from all over the world, people coming from all over the world, and they tend to stay here. So we have a growing demand for housing. So we don't necessarily experience the exact ebbs and flows of the rest of the market. So that's the two-prong answer is because I really know the market. And two is because I really believe in the longevity of the Boston market. Yeah, we actually had Brad D'Antonio on the show couple episodes ago, and he talked about the same idea. He only invests in a handful of neighborhoods in the Houston area. He only buys one type of property within 200 square feet. If it's any bigger or any smaller, he's not interested. It has to have a very similar floor plan. Everything has to be very similar. And there's so many that he has plenty of deal flow, but he's very specific. He knows exactly what he's looking for. And that allows him to not really spend a lot of time on it and still be able to find great deals. Right. No, absolutely. And again, <laughs> It feels kind of silly sometimes when I do it, but I don't do a lot of due diligence. I mean, the, the formula is there. I know it's going to work because it, it has already worked. I mean, people do all these fancy spreadsheets and everything. And again, if you're new to the business, I encourage you to do your numbers. I know what it costs for water. I know what the insurance provider is going to charge me. I already know what I'm going to have to pay roughly in taxes already based on the square footage, based on the neighborhood. So yeah, just having your particular niche is a very powerful thing because it allows you to kind of just go with the flow and kind of build. The problem that you have is a lot of you know investors get to point where I am and they get bored. And I can't remember where I read it somewhere or heard it somewhere, but you can either be poor and entertained or rich and a little bored. When you do the same things over and over again, it does get repetitive and people look for the next shiny object. They start saying, hey, I want to go invest in tax liens and I want to go build condos and I want to do larger development. People ask me that all the time. Why don't I ever want to get to building 20 unit buildings? You know, it'd be nice if something fell in my lap, but I mean, there's a lot of due diligence. There's a lot of extra you know, municipal stuff that comes with that. If I stay in my niche, I can scale very, very quickly and do the same thing over and over again. It's boring, but it's going to be successful at the end of the day. Yeah. It seems a lot of people are always looking for the next exciting thing, whatever it is. And that's not even just in real estate. That's with the stock market. That's with side hustles. That's with even corporate careers, even relationships. People are always thinking the grass is greener on the other side, right? And looking for that next best thing. And it very rarely turns out to be the case. You're usually better off sticking with what you've been doing, what's been working well for you. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when Bitcoin was a popular thing, what still is a popular thing, but uh, 
And everybody's like, yeah, I want to get into Bitcoin. I mean, it works for some people. And I know you're, some of your listeners are probably like, I own a bunch of Bitcoin and it's probably been really successful for you, but I didn't know it. I don't understand it. I still to this day don't entirely understand what cryptocurrency is. I kind of stick with what I know and just do it over and over again. And I'm a big believer in the idea that you can learn something, hopefully this makes sense, but 80% of something, right? Be somewhat successful. But I think the real money is made in those real small nuances, the last 10, 15, 20% of something. And you really get to expert level. When you're able to do that, that's when your success just kind of excels and just kind of snowballs at that point. And that's really what I'm trying to get to. I think I'm on the verge of kind of just being able to scale and it's one of the reasons I've been able to take on as many partners as I've had. And even through this pandemic where everyone's kind of home, I am still able to kind of assess properties and look at deals because I don't really necessarily need to be on site to look at these things. You kind of know the numbers inside out. Yeah, there's actually a quote that I really like and I'm not, I do not remember it by any means, but it talks about how you need to work on something so that you can become world-class at it. Because if you're not, there are people out there that are. And how do you plan on competing with them if you're not going all in on that one thing when all your competition is. So you got to think about it that way. If you're going in on a specific thing in real estate, but you're trying to do a bunch of other things, there's other people that are only doing that one thing. Like There's people like you. If somebody tries to come in and compete with you in your area, your neighborhoods with your types of properties, they're going to have a tough time if they're trying to do 10 different things. Whereas you, you're focusing on that specific thing. You know it well, you know it better than them, and you're probably going to be hard to beat for those people. And the same goes for everything, whether it's real estate, stock market, whatever you're working on, it's the point is valid. Absolutely. I mean, and that was the case in 2009, 2010, when I was trying to invest, there was a lot of experienced investors that were, that I was competing with. I was on the newer side and kind of competing with them. And you're talking about 10 years later, I'm, I'm that guy now that's sitting in the market that's very difficult to compete with. One of the things that I would encourage your listeners to do is I think people come into this business and they come into a lot of things, not knowing whether they're going to be successful. So they come in and kind of dip their toe in the water and they want success I always give people the analogy. It's kind of like LeBron James, player, one of the greatest basketball players in the world. LeBron James would never say, hey, when I make it pro or make it to the NBA, then I'm going to start working out. Then I'm going to start investing money in my body. It's the other way around. You have to put the time in. You have to put the work in to make it pro. People want the success before they kind of want the work to put the work in, right? So you have to go out and tell everyone what you're doing. Don't be afraid of putting it out there. I don't think there's anyone that knows me and knows the name Willie Mandrell that doesn't immediately associate that with real estate investing or Boston real estate, right? It's what I do. It's what I made up. And that's part of why I've been successful is because of that dedication that I don't stick my toe in. I basically went in all in and said, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. So when opportunities pop up, I don't think there are too many days where my phone doesn't ring or I get a text message about somebody that has a deal or has an opportunity or something in real estate that they'd like me to take a look at it. That's where success comes. It's just kind of just going all in and just going after it if that's something you really want. For someone listening to the show today who's new to real estate, learning all of the information that we've talked about throughout this episode is going to be very beneficial. But now they need to go out and actually put it into action to really see results. So what is the first step someone should take after finishing this episode to get started on their real estate journey? Figuring out what you want. I mean, I think that's the other thing. Most people don't really understand what they want. They think that hard work or posting up something on Instagram or Facebook is going to means that they're actually out there on their grind and they're actually putting in work. I think that you need to step back and you know put some things on paper. The idea that we're investing in real estate to be real estate investors or to have success is false. The number one thing or the, the reason that we're here and anybody's trying to be successful is so that you can provide 
and live a certain lifestyle. So I think that you first need to figure that out. The first thing that you need to do is figure that out. What type of house do you want to live? What type of cars do you want to drive? What type of school do you want for your children? How many vacations do you and your spouse want to take a year? What is the lifestyle that you want to live? If you can paint that perfect picture in your head and then say, you know, put a monetary value to that, right? I basically said, hey, these are the things that I want in my life and this is how much money I'm going to need to get there. And I took it a step further and I said, basically, I think a lot of people do that, but then they say, I'm going to work to get there. I basically said, what I want to do is I want to create enough passive income to live that lifestyle. I determined basically that I needed a certain number of properties. The plan is not going to come in a day. It's not going to come in a week. It takes time. And I think you're going to revise it year after year, but I think it needs to be in place. I think you need to put something on paper, whether it's just you and your significant other, or just you sitting down and saying, here are the things that I want to achieve in the year 2020, despite what's going on. Here are the things that I want to achieve in five years and just kind of put something on paper. I think that's really what it comes down to. People kind of just start January 2020 and say, hey, this is going to be my year. And they work really hard for 60 days and then kind of just fade out. I think you really kind of just need to commit yourself to something, whether it be buying your first property or buying your next three or whatever it may be, put it on paper and own it. Wellie, thanks for sharing your story and all the knowledge that you've gained over the years. For those interested in learning more about you, where's the best place for them to go? You can visit my company websites, mandrellco.com. It's M-A-N-D-R-E-L-L-C-O.com. If you go to backslash coaching, we provide a 30-minute conference call, 30-minute mentoring and consulting call for anybody who's interested in kind of talking that needs some coaching, some mentoring, some help through their real estate journey. If you're local to the Boston market, you can absolutely join Boston Wealth Builders. It's bostonwealthbuilders.com. Free membership you join, you have access to all of our rehab tours, our webinars, and any other educational information that we put out there. I would love to have you as part of the group. And then, like I said, my information is on that company website, mandroco.com, if you want to reach out to me directly as well. I'll be sure to put links to everything that Willie just mentioned in the show notes. You guys can go connect with him there. As always, I'll also put links to various different books that cover the topics that we talked about today. So if you want to go read those books and dive into them deeper, you can do that by using the books in the show notes below. Willie, thanks so much for joining me. Rob, I appreciate you having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.